to Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections. Immigrants flocked to Kansas after the Civil War as vast tracts of cheap land were opened to white settlement. Their excitement was fueled in no small part by brochures the railroad companies were distributing, claiming the state had the best and cheapest farming and grazing lands in America, and touting Kansas as the Garden of the West. Contrast this with the assessments of early explorers of the Great Plains. The report from the expedition of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark across the Louisiana Purchase Lands from 1804 to 1806 piqued the curiosity of Americans east of the Mississippi and other expeditions followed. Zebulon Pike journeyed across what would become southeast and south-central Kansas from 1806 to 1807. He concluded that the plains would become a natural barrier to further westward expansion since the prairies were incapable of cultivation. In 1819, a company of Major Stephen H. Long's men, commanded by zoologist Thomas Say, explored northeast Kansas and concurred with Pike that the prairie was almost wholly unfit for cultivation and, of course, uninhabitable by a people depending on agriculture for their subsistence. Long's map dubbed this area the Great American Desert. These early opinions about the lack of agricultural potential of the Great Plains helped determine the U.S. policy of removing Indian tribes east of the Mississippi and establishing a permanent Indian territory that included present-day Kansas, ignoring the fact that most of the Indian tribes also depended on agriculture for their survival. In the intervening years, from 1810 to 1870, the U.S. population exploded from just over 7 million to nearly 40 million. The pressure to open more of the western frontier for white settlement grew, the passage of the Homestead Act of 1862 made western migration attractive to farmers who had little hope of buying land in more established states. Most of the farmers opted to grow corn in Kansas, a crop ill-suited to the prairies. An Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe pamphlet from 1876 explains. From the close of the war to 1872, the general financial condition of the nation enabled those who so desired to sell their farms in the older states and to obtain homes in the new. The monetary stringency, which began to tighten its grip over the whole country in 1873, has since prevented many thousands who would otherwise be in Kansas today from disposing of their property except at ruinous prices. They have the willingness but lack the ability, and every land agent in the state could report such cases by the folio. This fact, without doubt, accounts for much of the relatively small increase of population during the last five years, when compared with that of the former five. At the same time, and working in conjunction with it, the fluctuation of the corn crop, beginning it with 1872, and the visitation of locusts in 1874, had a temporary influence on the tide. Many of the newcomers are wholly dependent on the sod crop, usually corn. The aggregate corn crop in 1872 amounted to 46 millions of bushels, while in 1873 it tumbled down to 29 millions of bushels, a decrease of 37%. The causes of this diminution would of course affect other staple yields, and the resulting depression of local business together with the constantly increasing stringency of the whole country, 
could not fail to work its logical effects in the minds of newcomers. In the summer of the following year, 1874, the delightful grasshopper made its appearance, and the aggregate corn crop pitched away down to 15 millions of bushels. Most of it went into the hopper, literally, as did about every other green thing to which that genial but rapacious insect took a fancy. Referring to a graph charting Kansas corn production, it continues. The fluctuations of the corn crop are very suggestive. The zigzagging of the corn line during the past five years certainly has a meaning for Kansas farmers. If any lines ever said anything in the world, these shout to the farmer, don't put all your eggs in the corn basket, put most in the wheat basket, it is safer. Every state has its peculiar conditions of climate, soil, and market, and no man in the world is surer to discover them, to adapt his work to them, than the practical American farmer. The wheat line shows still another thing, that the variations in the fall of rain are apt to occur in those months when the wheat is out of danger and when the corn is in danger. The years 1872 and 1873 certainly indicate the probability of this statement if they do nothing more. At the same time, the U.S. government began granting millions of acres of land to the railroads in exchange for laying tracks across the undeveloped lands. The railroads in turn marketed these lands to Easterners, who would build homes and organize towns along the railroads. In order to do this, Long's Great American Desert had to be transformed into the Garden of the West, as it was called by this 1876 Santa Fe land promoter. This is a book of facts. Its aim is to give information that is valuable to everybody who is concerned with the question, how and where to get a living. It does not indulge in theories nor in fancies, but tells what has been done and what can be done in southwestern Kansas. It is not a plea for emigration to the lands of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad Company, but is the declaration of the company that their lands are worthy of the attention of everybody who is looking for a place where he can better his condition. The Great American Desert Theory is getting very thin. The boundaries of this geographical bugaboo have so rapidly receded before the plow that especially with the absolutely dry season of California in view, we are not prepared to deny that the Western Belt, in addition to its superior stock advantages, may yet be found possessed of better grain and fruit qualities than are now conceded. This passage alludes to a common 19th century claim of land promoters that rain would follow the plow. In 1876, many people still remembered the extreme drought of 1859 to 1860 when emergency supplies of food and clothing were sent from eastern states to feed the Kansas pioneers that had not already given up and returned to the east. Governor Samuel J. Crawford, in his 1865 pamphlet, The State of Kansas, A Home for Immigrants, does his best to downplay the severity of the Kansas climate. An erroneous impression has gone forth that Kansas is subject to drought, will not produce vegetation, has no timber, and many other equally absurd and unjust disparagements. This was caused by the extraordinary drought which prevailed in many of the western states during the year 1860. Parties were employed to solicit aid from other states, some of whom, in order to procure large contributions, misrepresented the actual state of affairs in Kansas. 
Since the year 1860, the state has been blessed with an abundance of rain, and the yield of crops has been equally as great as that of other states. The oldest inhabitants universally agree that the drought of 1860 was the only one of any consequence that ever visited Kansas. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe offered free sleeping cars for immigrants from Kansas City on. In the 1880s, they published a pamphlet shamelessly titled, Where to Go to Become Rich, Farmers, Miners, and Tourist's Guide to Kansas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. The Kansas Pacific advertised their land grants for sale along what they called the Golden Grain Belt, which extended along the Kansas and Smoky Hill Rivers from Kansas City to western Kansas. The railway offered reduced rates for land explorers' tickets and promised to refund the fare if the traveler bought land from them. The Kansas Pacific's land promoters felt a need to address the quality of living issues that might scare off young families, as illustrated by the circa 1880 flyer, Immigrant's Guide to the Most Fertile Lands of Kansas. Multitudes in the older states can improve their condition by selling out and emigrating to these fertile fields, which can be purchased at $2.5 to $6 an acre on 11 years credit. Every village has commodious churches and every school district comfortable schoolhouses. In each of the larger villages there is a graded school. No state in the Union, of its aides, pays so much attention to the education of the young. Along the line of this road there are four denominational colleges, the State University and the State Agricultural College. From 1870 to 1880, North Central Kansas gained inhabitants rapidly and Jewell County on the Nebraska border was officially established in 1887. In 1888, it appeared that railroad towns like Mankato, the Jewell County seat, would grow prodigiously. A land promotion pamphlet the Union Pacific Kansas Division distributed that year, entitled The Great Northwest, included this description of Mankato, which was situated on both the Rock Island and the Union Pacific lines. Mankato is the county seat and in the exact geographical center of the county. And while it is the best town in the county, it has less than 1,000 inhabitants, the result of an uncertainty heretofore existing as to which route would be taken by the through line of road to Denver. While Mankato is but a city of the third class today, it is destined in the near future to be one of the best, if not the leading city in northern Kansas. The population in the Mankato area did swell to 1800 and 1892, but in 1893 a recession hit Kansas railroads and the people who had speculated during the boom times. By the mid-1890s, the area dropped back to about 1,200 people and leveled off at around 1,400 by the turn of the century. Today, rural Kansas is full of towns like Mankato, where the population has shrunk since 1900. Mankato's population is once again less than 1,000. Many Kansas towns went through this same boom and bust cycle in the 19th century. In an ironic twist, the town of Mankato, as well as several other small Kansas towns, is once again offering free land to people who are willing to move there and build homes on it. In all fairness, the lushness and variety of the native prairie vegetation fooled a lot of people who had never seen anything like it before into thinking it was ripe for cultivation. In reality, the dryness and harsh climate prevented most of Kansas from ever becoming the Garden of the West. This has been a Kansas Memory, a Kansas Historical Society podcast. 
The documents used in this podcast are part of Kansas Memory, a virtual repository of primary sources from the Historical Society collections. The URL for the website is www.kansasmemory.org.